Tonight, uh, I want to start by uh, sharing a story that's probably a little intense for some of you. Uh, statistically, um, a few of you in this room have experienced something very much like what I'm talking about. But for the rest of you, you probably haven't even thought about this stuff yet. But um, it, it's really like the, I feel like the only way to honor the scripture that I'm reading tonight is to, to be pretty vulnerable with you uh, about a way that I experienced some degree of suffering or tragedy. And um, all of the normal ways that people try to tried to care for me, didn't really work. Um, and so anyway, uh, in the fall of, it was 2012, um, my wife and I had a miscarriage. And it was a really strange tragedy to go through. Um, and my wife and I obviously had very different experiences and costs in, in the miscarriage. We lost a child, but it was, it was a child we never met. We lost a child, but we lost that child really early, not late in the pregnancy. So our friends who lost children much later in their pregnancies seem to have a, a very different experience. Like we felt a little guilty uh, sharing about our sort of tragedy when they had felt feet and hands move and they'd named their baby and these sorts of things. And, and so at, at a certain level, we thought, well, who are we to, 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 to say that we're suffering? But it was more than nothing. And of course, tonight I'm thinking about how every single one of our tragedies fits there in some way, shape, or form. We had a miscarriage, but we also already had two kids. And so for many of my friends who've had miscarriages, and they're incredibly common, for many of my friends who had miscarriages, um, that often came with this fear about whether they would ever have kids or not. But that wasn't our case. And so this happened, and neither of us really knew how to feel or what to think. And so she realized that she was miscarrying on a Friday morning, and we cried for a bit and, and, and sort of were confused, and we talked about it. And I said, hey, I'm just going to stay home from work today. And she said, that's really dumb because you're not of any help. Uh, that's really what she said. Um, she's, uh, I can see a cursor actually on this Google Doc, so she's looking at all this right now um, and, and editing probably on the fly. Uh, so anyway, but, uh, but uh, this particular story, I wanted to get her permission and stuff to, of course, share this. Um, but she said, this is really dumb. You can't do anything to help, right? So I felt really helpless. I kind of hung my head. And then after a few hours, I went to this lunch meeting with another pastor in town. And he and I were eating at this restaurant that doesn't exist anymore, but, but it was a nice meal. And I remember he was asking me how I was doing, and I said, can I be honest with you? And he said, you know, yeah, like you do. And, uh, and I trusted him a lot. And I said, brother, my wife and I, I think just had a miscarriage. And I have just no clue how to feel about this or what to think about this. And, and he got really mad at me because uh, I was with him. And he asked for the check. And he scolded me and told me to, to, you know, go home and be with my wife. And what was I doing not being with her on this day that, she, that we found out we had a miscarriage, you know? So I felt terrible. Like, what? Of course, I'm such a dummy. Of course I'm a dummy. Why did I leave my house? So I drove home. You know, it took me like 10 minutes. I got home. I walked in the door. She says, what are you doing home? And I said, hey, well, Paul told me that I'm an idiot and I shouldn't have left you and I'm so sorry. And she goes, well, Paul's not me. You can just go do your work. Like, you're not of any help. So I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so confused. I have no idea what to do. Uh, and it gets worse because that night was the night that we, we did this annual event called our fall retreat. We used to not do a winter retreat. We did a fall one instead. And it was in October and and we were hosting this retreat. And I didn't know what to do. Again, my wife, we were going to go as a family, but my wife was like, hey, I don't really know. Why don't you just go by yourself? And I was like, I, I don't know. Like, I probably should just stay. I mean, I had all these responsibilities, and I don't know how I was going to pass them off. But my wife just had a miscarriage, you know, and she was like, for real, just go. Like, I'm going to be cool, you know? And I'm like, all right. So I go, and I'm just kind of messed up. And my boss's wife, at that point, I'm the associate director of the house. And my boss's wife finds out that we had a miscarriage. And so she scolds me for being at the retreat. She sends me home. So I go home again. Uh, and, and when I get home filled with, like, guilt and sadness, my wife says, why did you come home? And I told her. And she said, I'm so sorry. I was like, you, 
you had, a, you had like a miscarriage. You know, you'd apologize to me, you know. And, uh, and it was just really strange to make things more confusing. The next day she gets up, we get up together, and she says, you know what, it's probably actually best for us to be around people that love us rather than just to be home alone. And there's nothing we can do about this. So let's go, you know. And so we all went as a family to this retreat. And it was really strange because we told all these people we're pregnant, but we didn't really want to talk about it, you know. Uh, and, and so we're carrying like this sort of secret in a way, and this secret load of like sadness and confusion and guilt. My boss's wife was super happy that Anna was there. She just wasn't happy that I was there. Uh, so she loved that Anna was there. Everybody likes when she's around. And, and then that Sunday morning at the retreat, during the morning worship service, right, you know, probably an hour or two before we kind of shut things down and clean up and go home, my wife went to the bathroom and she came back out and she pulls me aside from the middle of, you know, worship service stuff. Uh, and then she says she, she um, has just flushed the fetus down the toilet. And no one tells you about those things. I mean, can we do, I mean, like, can we do that? She told me, I mean, it was such a shock. I didn't feel anything. I mean, everybody's over here raising their hands, you know, thinking about all the stuff that they're going, going through in their life. They have no idea because my wife just went to the bathroom. That's all she did. Can we, I mean, what should we have done instead? Can you just flush a baby down the toilet? What should we have done? And how could she even have possibly known that that was going to happen when she went to the bathroom that moment? And I was so mad we were at the retreat in this particular moment, like that stupid bathroom of all bathrooms. And, and in the middle of this room where nobody hears, I don't, I mean, I'm sure there's a couple of women in this room that might actually understand. But I'm not going to sort of ask for a show of hands. And so that just felt so isolating and alone. And why the heck? But then I also was confused because I was also grateful that I was with her. And if I wasn't sent home on Friday, I wouldn't have come back with her in this moment. And she probably would have been home and that would have happened by herself while I'm at the retreat. And so I was just, everything was just like a mess in my head. I was so overwhelmed and confused. And no one seemed to be able to help. Like every time somebody moved toward me and said, here's what you should do. They, they spoke out of their experience. I mean, they were trying. You know, my, my boss's wife, Kelsey, she was uh, mad. But she wasn't really mad at me. She was, of course, just mad for the same reason we'll see Jesus mad in a minute. Because of the way in which people in this world that you care about get wounded. But I just didn't know what to do, and so I interpreted, you know, her madness as, as like, I did something wrong because I had no idea what to do, and I was sort of lost. And, and, and she was just trying to help. Like, what are you doing here? Go home and be with your wife. And my wife's like, that's not helpful. And I'm like, well, nothing, I, I can't bring a baby back from the dead. Nothing I can do right now is helpful. Nothing. And everybody seems to tell me that I should be with her, but my wife is saying, don't be with me because you're not helpful. You're just sitting around sad and confused too. Go fix something. You know, I'm like, yes, finally you've given me permission to fix a thing, and I don't want to fix a thing right now. And it's something I can't fix. You, you understand? Everybody was trying to do their best, but their advice wasn't to, to, their advice was this general kind of advice that was coming from their own experience, and I get that they were trying to love me in their own way. But what I experienced was something that wasn't helpful. And as a matter of fact, it wasn't until 13 months later when the emotional weight of all of this hit me, I was, I was holding Audrey Grace, who's my youngest. And on November 10th, 2013, I met one of my daughters for the very first time. I met Audrey, and I was holding her in my arms. And in that same moment that I met her, I realized that Audrey isn't the child that I lost. 
And outside of the promises and hopes I have in Jesus, I will never know that child. And, and, and in, in the sort of room, my wife had three miscar- or, uh, uh, C-sections. And so there's this like waiting room between where she has a C-section and the hospital room where we'll chill for a few days. And, and it's a really strange moment as a man, um, especially in this world where, where we're trying to sort of um, sh- kind of flex back against historical injustices against women in so many different ways. That like I'm sitting here going like, she has done all the work. Why do I get to be the first one to hold my kid? And it just feels wrong, and I don't know what to do about that, but this is, I'm the first person this child's holding, and so I want to be present for her, and my wife is like, just, you're not helping by feeling guilty, so just hold the child, you know, like, <laughs> the whole thing, and, uh, and so I'm holding Audrey, and all I'm thinking of is, oh, this isn't just a replacement. This is a different kid, and I just started crying. My oh, poor Audrey, I mean, she has no idea, of course, but, like, I'm holding her, and instead of just being so grateful, I'm just crying for a child I don't know, but who, who could prepare me for that, and who could say, Paul, wait, was Paul Rebello? while I was at lunch with him, was he supposed to say, oh, I know why you're here, because your wife doesn't think you're helpful right now, and you have nothing to do, and you can't bring a kid back from the dead, and 13 months from now, you're going to feel emotional about this. You understand, there's no way that Paul could have known that. How could my friends and mentors have known that I wouldn't really emotionally scratch the surface of this experience for another 13 months? They were just having to react based off their own experiences, but I had a different experience than they did. That's the reality. Because I have, I have a different relationship than they do with their spouses, with the babies that they've lost. And the response that they wanted for them might not have been the response which was suited for me or my bride. Do you see that? Friends, I'm not talking about getting a bad grade on a test. I'm not talking about getting a cold or hating being inside because of the stupid gray clouds that won't go away right now. I'm talking about real suffering and tragedies that we experience in life. Things that break apart families or rip open despair, like the real marrow of stuff, you know? That's what I'm talking about tonight. When we experience those kinds of things, each one of us experiences them personally. We experience them personally because God made us persons. And that means impersonal help doesn't work. You should read this book. You should listen to that podcast. Go to that group. See a counselor. You should pray about it. Each of those things might actually be helpful in certain contexts or a lot of contexts, but if they're impersonal, if they're generalized recommendations, then they aren't what you need most because you're not everyone else. You're a person and you need personal help, not methods, not strategies, not what everyone recommends. You and I, we need compassion and we need love. That's what we need. When we had our miscarriage, all the advice didn't seem to help at all. What did help was compassion and love and the recognition that there isn't a formula for this. And the same is true for the suffering and tragedies and injustices in your life. And tonight I want us to see in this story of Jesus how he in his infinite compassion and love meets us differently, each, each of us differently. And he has just what we need. You're doing all right. Let's pray. I need to pray for you as much as anything else probably right now. All right, let's go. Father, lift our heads, strengthen our weak knees. You're not done with any of us. And send your spirit right now. that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Open your Bibles to John chapter 11.
digitally or paper, I don't care. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, I want to give you one, so come find me afterwards if you don't have a print one. John chapter 11. This chapter, it's John's the fourth book in the New Testament. Uh, and 11, you can count to 11. Um, uh, this chapter is, is literally and theologically at the center of the Gospel of John. So if you're looking at the Gospel of John and you want to know what this whole thing is about, you can actually look right in the middle. Actually, it's true for almost all Hebrew and Jewish writings. This is the hinge point when Jesus moves from Jerus- into Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. Before that, he, he's not moving toward the cross, so to speak, so directly. After this, he does. In chapter 11, we find one of the boldest and clearest claims of who Jesus is, the Messiah and the Son of God. We'll read that in just a minute. Out of the lips of Martha. This chapter lays out a sort of map of what's to come. A stone rolled away from a tomb and a dead man coming back to life. We find out in this chapter that one of Jesus' best friends, Lazarus, had died. It seems that one of Jesus' best friends was this trio of siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who lived in Bethany. And we know that they were close because in, in, in uh, Luke's gospel and John's gospel, there's this way of writing about it that they, ju- they just talk about, you know, those people in, at Bethany as if everybody knows Jesus' friends. And that these are significant ones. I'm not going to get into it tonight too much, but these crowds of people come from Jerusalem to mourn with them, with the sisters, over the death of their brother in such a way that gives all historians this sense that these must have been a, a really uh, influential family that all these people would come and mourn with them. Well, Lazarus, one of Jesus' best friends, has died. And, when we pick, and as we pick up in verse 20, just a minute, um, or verse 21 or something, wherever we're going to be, um, Jesus is on his way to Bethany. He's moving there to the, the town where the siblings um, are, are from and live. And this town's less than about two miles from Jerusalem. It's like one point something miles from Jerusalem. And the last time Jesus was in this area, he was almost killed. And as he's drawing near to Bethany, we're told that Lazarus had been dead for four days. So let me say this first real quick. It, the reason why the, the getting close to Jerusalem matters is because the last time Jesus had been there, he'd almost been killed, and so there's this tension. The disciples actually, when, when, when he suggests that he's going, if you read earlier in John 11, one of them says, let's, let's go too so that we can die with him. And there's some debate about what that tone must have been like, but there's all, it, almost all commentators in church history across 2,000 years have agreed that there is some sense of resignation in Thomas's voice, the, the realist of the disciple bunch. If Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to die. And, and, and our lives are with him, so let's go too so that we can die. It's like a very Eeyore comment, you know, sort of thing. And so th- as they're moving toward Jerusalem, this is a terrifying moment for the disciples. And the tensions are rising. And just after this whole scene, Jesus does this miracle at the very end of raising Lazarus from the dead in front of a huge crowd of witnesses. And that seals his fate. From that point on, everybody's out to kill him. He knows what he's doing. That's why this matters. As he's drawing near, we're told that Lazarus has been dead for four days, which is a really interesting note because a common thought amongst the Jews was that, um, that the soul remained in the body for three days after death. So perhaps there's some significance here that the body had been in the tomb four days. Because culturally, there might have been some who believed that Lazarus was only mostly dead, not all dead. You remember the Princess Bride? That mostly dead means slightly alive, you know? Uh, And so none of that ambiguity was here, which might explain an earlier very curious thing. We don't know. If you read earlier, Jesus waited two days, and everybody was super confused by him waiting. Maybe that's how some—I don't know. I don't know. 
But Lazarus has been in the grave for four days, in his tomb for four days. He's all dead. And when Mary and Martha got word that Jesus was drawing close to their town, Martha tears out to meet him, but Mary, her sister, stays home. And Martha runs to Jesus and says, uh, Keely, you're running slides tonight, yeah? Would you, would you throw up that first one? That's verse 21, I think. Yeah. So Martha runs out to meet Jesus and she says, um, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Remember that line. You'll hear it again. Maybe there's frustration or anger or sadness in that kind of comment off Martha's lips. We don't know. Maybe it's a, a sober declaration of faith. Why didn't you come earlier? This wouldn't have happened. However we read it, she has seen something in him that gives her this sense that if Jesus were around, things like this don't happen. Other than him on the cross, not a single time in the life of Jesus has anybody die in his presence. Even now, she says, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't say to her comment, God will give you whatever you ask. He doesn't say, yes, he will. Or I'll ask him then. Jesus says, your brother will rise again with the confidence only a God would have. Martha says, yes, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. But Jesus tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. So this is what happens, right? So your brother will rise again. I believe that he will rise again on the last day. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He doesn't deny the resurrection on the last day. He almost assumes it in himself. And he tells her, anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And he explains it further in classic Jewish fashion because Jesus is Jew. And it's the way he was culturally trained that you say something and then you say something similar that explains it further. It's like, it's like uh, Jewish nesting dolls. I don't know, not Russian nesting dolls, but whatever. Um, and he explains it further, saying, everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? One Christian remarked that Jesus didn't want to leave fruit unplucked. So he asked, do you believe this, Martha? Because how many of us leave fruit on a tree, so to speak? It's the difference between saying, if anyone wants to come and serve with Logan and Emily this weekend, let them know, versus do you want to serve? You see, one of those is much easier just to receive passively and not respond to. Do you want to? Everyone who believes in me will die, will never die, Jesus said. Do you believe this, Martha? And her response is lovely. She says, yes, Lord, I have always believed you. She says more things. But she kind of dodges, is my point. She doesn't say she believes what he says. Do you believe this? And she says, I believe you. And that's enough for now. Sometimes, friends, it's impossible for us to believe the things God tells us to believe. But it's never impossible for us to believe him. I don't know if I trust that this is going to work, Lord, but I trust you. That's what Martha does here. Then she turns and she runs back to her sister and she tells her that Jesus wants to see her and immediately Mary rose from her depression. There's this resurrection which happens with her. It's the same word in Greek for the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus. Mary rose. Because life in the kingdom of God is full of resurrections, of risings. 
She rose and she went to him immediately. Then our our next slide, we'll pick it up in verse 32. When Mary arrived, now it's Mary. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and she said, remember this line, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is the exact same thing that Martha said to Jesus. Both of them had their brother die. Both of them come to Jesus with the same complaint or declaration of faith or whatever you want to call it on their lips. Both of them. Same thing, yeah? But Jesus responds to Mary differently. Instead of entering into a discussion with her about what's possible for her brother and things concerning the resurrection, look at what he does next. Keely, if you would, verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw other people around wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him. Were you with me a few weeks ago when we talked about Jesus getting angry? A deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. They told him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. What does Jesus do? She said the same thing that Martha did. What does Jesus do? He notices her. He sees her. He sees all the people around her who have come with her because when we go to Jesus, we often bring others with us, friends. Later on, those people that came with him, many of them believed. And a deep anger comes from within Jesus, not angry at them, angry at the death of a friend, angry at the way death, that fruit of sin, wrecks the people he loves. Even though Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the grave, he enters into mourning and anger at the effect that death has in this world. Anybody who tells you that you should chip her up in the face of death or, or, or go to a funeral and just be happy that someone is with the Lord now, that's not what Jesus does at funerals. You are welcome Go back to Martha. You are, when you look forward to the resurrection on the last day, Jesus doesn't tell Martha, stop thinking about resurrection, your brother just died. He does enter into that conversation with her, you see. But so too, when someone's weeping, he doesn't say, why don't you just be like your sister? She's the one that was talking about resurrection. He weeps. And in his full humanity, he asks, where have you put him? And he cries and cries and cries. One translation says he bawls. This is Bible Trivia 101. You can just throw that up if you would, Keely. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. With Martha, Jesus responds to her faith, and he invites her into a deeper faith. She has words to offer, and he offers her words in return. She talks about resurrection. He talks about resurrection. With Mary, she falls at his feet in tears, and Jesus sees her and weeps with her. Which response is right? That's probably not the most helpful question if you were with us a few weeks ago. What if there isn't a right or wrong response? What if there are just more life-giving ones? Imagine if after Martha, the first sister, told Jesus that she believes he can raise Lazarus from the dead. I believe that that still Jesus, anything's possible, and he weeps. What if that happened? Or flip it. What if Mary comes to Jesus and she falls down at his feet, says the same thing, but she's weeping, and Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life, Mary. Do you see? Do you know that every single time Jesus responds to somebody in the gospel account, it's unique? You will never find Jesus responding to people in the same way. 
It's unique. It's personal. Yes, there are commonalities. He feeds hungry people. He warns proud people. He moves toward outcasts. But each interaction is unique because so too is each person. Mary's an introvert. She is definitely an Enneagram 4. No question. There's a text there with me and a couple pastors today doing all this work. Um, You can find for me one Enneagram 4 on this planet who wouldn't love for someone to notice them and see them and weep with them when they weep. Martha's an extrovert. She's either a one or a two on the Enneagram. I'm not sure. But Jesus rewards her belief in him and her initiative by inviting her into deeper mysteries and creating space for her work in the kingdom. Jesus like hangs back and lets Martha go be the one to tell Mary to come. What's the deal? Why didn't Jesus go to Mary? Is he wanting just to let Mary make her own decision and come to him? Or is he actually leaving room for Martha to do Martha things? These are different women. These are different women, and neither one of them needs to be just like the other. In Luke's gospel, there's a moment with Mary and Martha where it seems like maybe Mary has the upper hand, so to speak. But John's gospel, it seems like Martha's crushing it. These are two very different women, and I can't think of a better time than the present for us to be reminded that it's okay to not be like somebody else. Here are two women responding to Jesus in two very different ways, and he's able to respond to them in two different ways. Women, you are under so much pressure right now in our culture. In our, in our cultural imagination right now, I think it's impossible. there's an impossible picture of a woman. And it's crushing you. And I'm not talking about how a woman looks, even though that is also crushing, because simultaneously there are messages for how you're supposed to care for your body and celebrating weight loss and hundreds of hearts for every picture of you looking better according to someone else's standard. And at the same time, you're also not supposed to care what anybody else thinks. Hashtag body shaming. But it, it feels right now like you women experience this impossible cross-pressure in every arena of your life. My wife can't win. She's not with our kids enough, working enough, playful enough, serious enough, bold enough, gentle enough. Every Instagram story she sees is this invitation for her to realize that she's not living her best life, but she could if she looked more like that woman. It's an oppressive pressure. And it's been decades since men have even believed that they could be what our cultural imagination suggests they could be. We're defeated and passive. Some of us are confident, but only because we're paper thin in our understandings of ourselves and the world. We're not tough enough, gentle enough, productive enough, sensitive enough, respectful enough, courageous enough. We need to shed toxic masculinity, but no one trusts us with kids. And we wonder if there's really a monster inside of us because of it. And so we just pick one thing. I can't do all the things. I'm going to pick one thing and try to do it well. And we keep our heads down and we all become something that ends with the word holic. It's a mess trying to fit everyone else's standards, isn't it? Following the patterns of our culture and of this world will always result in oppressive standards, friends. But what if... What if Jesus and his kingdom don't suppress our differences? What if Jesus and his kingdom liberate them? He doesn't seem to mind the unique ways that we encounter him. He doesn't homogenize the people he interacts with. He meets them where they are, full of compassion and love, and every single interaction he has with them is personal. Martha runs to meet him. Mary is invited. Martha speaks. Mary cries. Martha works. Mary listens. What about you? Where do you need to meet God? Where is he wanting to meet you? 
Friend, you don't need to be anyone else. God meant to make you. And rather than being told that you ought to be all things, which is just another weight upon your shoulders, what if you just need to be you? The you God made, the the you God is redeeming, the you he is liberating for glorious participation in his kingdom, which doesn't mean that there isn't a ton of work and change ahead of you. But it does mean that whatever God has for you is specific to you and about you, not about somebody else. Right this minute, God is, for a fact, inviting you personally into new ways of life. I just know however he works in your life, it's personal. Remember last week, like he tells each one of us our own story. So what that means is from my stage right here, I know the general things. I know feeding the poor and moving toward the outcast and and warning the proud. I know that the ways of this world are oppressive and the ways of Christ are liberating. I know that. I know that everybody who follows after the course of the world looking for their own self looks exactly the same in 10 years. I see the story. Everybody who says, I'm going to stop following Jesus. I don't know if I'm going to do this stuff. I'm going to just, I'm going to carve out my own path. They all look exactly the same. They even have the same color profiles on their Instagram pages. It's the same videos. It's the same picture locations. It's the same hashtags. The only really strange people in the world are the people who follow God. They're freaking weird. He seems to live. I mean, it's not just people who go to church, mind you. I'm saying the folks who follow Jesus are weird and really cool. And you can't be them because you're not supposed to be them. Let's look at two more verses and we'll finish tonight. Verse 36. The people who were standing nearby, remember Jesus had been weeping. I just went off on some things. Jesus was weeping. And the people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him? But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? It's a little strange, honestly, to preach out of John 11 and not talk about Lazarus the whole time. His raising is, is, is definitely, like if you're going to talk about Mary and Martha, you talk about Luke chapter 10, not John chapter 11. It's, it's a weird passage. I can't find examples of it. But Jesus' raising of Lazarus is definitely the main point of this chapter. Definitely. But our sermon series is called Encountering Jesus, and we're looking at these various encounters that people have with Jesus to learn more about who he is and who we are by looking at him. And so back in December, I remember just looking through gospel stories and going like, I don't know what I'm going to preach on. I don't know who's even going to preach this sermon. But I want us just to try to learn from some encounter Jesus has with Mary and Martha on the road. Because that's sort of strange that he has different encounters with each of them. And I literally had no, I don't know what I was going to say. But this whole sermon series is just cherry-picking encounters people have with Jesus and learning from him. And it strikes me in, in, the, in the preparation of this, it struck me, I guess, that, that this moment with Mary and Martha is so much like our moment in history. Couldn't Jesus have kept Lazarus from dying? In the next few verses, we read of Jesus calling forth life from the grave. He he literally stands before an open tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come out, and a dead body obeys him. It's cool. It's a really cool passage to preach. A bunch of, like, youth groups, and people will talk about grave clothes coming off, and all these, like, really, it's a super cool passage of Scripture to preach. But there's this moment right here that struck me. I went, man, that doesn't seem as present to our current experience as this moment outside Bethany, just on the edge of town. These encounters with Jesus seem so much more like the way we encounter Jesus today. Because Jesus has already done so much 
to give us cause to believe in him. And, and sometimes we wonder why he doesn't show up earlier or in the way that we expect him to or the way we ask him to or want him to. And we might even have a belief, like on, the, on one hand, so Jesus has done a lot and we know that Mary and Martha know Jesus has done a lot. They've seen it. And on the other hand, we might even have a belief and, and a trust that in the end, we too shall rise. Maybe. But in this moment, what we experience is all kinds of suffering and death. Even if it is mingled with inexpressible beauty in this life. And some of us are running out to meet him on the horizon and others of us are crying in our rooms while he's asking us to come meet him and he, so he can cry with us. That feels more like our experience to me. And either way, I know this, his spirit is on the loose. And what we do know about him from looking at his encounters with others and from the testimony that has come through the ages and the church is that he meets and leads us personally. So I don't know what you think Jesus is offering you in your life right now. I don't know what you think I'm selling up front or what you're going to find when you open the pages of Scripture. If you do, please do. I don't know what you think you're going to find or what you think Jesus is offering you, but I'm telling you it's not a strategy. And it's not four steps or a particular brand. It's not a podcast or just a new habit. It's compassion and love and abundant life for you personally right now. It's why we pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that whole prayer is about now. And Jesus is offering you that now. Right here in the midst of a world passing away, Jesus is making something new in you and in his church. And soon and very soon he will before our eyes do what we can hardly imagine. For he is the resurrection and the life for all who believe in him. Death is not the end. But right now, friends, please reject the oppressive standards of the world and the culture and what everybody else says you ought to do with your life. And you look at Jesus and you realize that he has something for you that he's holding out. And it's called abundant life. But it will look for you unique and personal. It's not your parents' life. It's not my life. It's not the person sitting next to you's life. It's not the life of somebody you're attracted to across this little aisle here is the life Jesus is holding out for you. Let's pray. Father, Mary and Martha had seen your son do things that, that gave them um, cause for hope. And if anyone in this room has not witnessed you and your kingdom at work, pray that you would give them a taste of it. Otherwise, how can they possibly believe? And for those of us that have witnessed some of the power and the life-giving resources and fruit of your kingdom, help us to remember that and to look forward to what you've promised to do. And in the meantime, help us to believe that you meet us personally, that you have something for us that um, that is uniquely fit for us. It, it's some of what it means when your son says that his yoke is easy. Every yoke in the ancient Near East, every single one of them was custom fit for a particular cow. And surely that's some of what Jesus meant when he said his yoke is easy, is that every single thing he means to share is perfectly fit for our shoulders. I, I don't know how your spirit is on the loose right now with each person in their life, Lord, but I know you're at work. And I know there's ways that you are going to meet them in their rooms, ways you're calling them out of their rooms, or ways you are meeting them on the horizon or something, but I, I pray that in the next minute, 
as we sit in some silence, that, that, you would, um, that a light bulb would come on and they would know some of how you are, you are um, wanting to meet them and give them a vision of the abundant life you have to offer them. Please, Lord, in Jesus' name. Friends, take a minute to just think about how God might be um, meeting you tonight and, and what he might be asking of you. Um, if you want to pray with any, we're going to come up and take communion in a minute. If you want to pray with somebody first, um, there'll be folks in the back who can pray with you. Um, we'll also have folks who can pray with you after as well. Um, and in just a minute, we'll come to the Lord's table. So take a minute.